are continuing our series, The Story in the Way of Jesus. Today, we are going to read one of the only stories in the book of Mark that is not about Jesus. It's about his friend, John. And as you heard six seconds ago, the end of John's life. Um, But my hope for today is that we'll get to maybe see this story differently. I know this is a passage we've probably all read before. Maybe you haven't, and you're like, wow, people's heads get cut off at church. That's different. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And just you wait. (laughs) It gets better. Um, But my hope is that today this becomes more than just a passage that we kind of breeze through, but that we get to really see some of the depth and richness of what is happening in this story and, um, and the way it points us to the way of Jesus. So um, we're going to do this a little bit like youth group style, where we're going to go through the whole narrative, but we're going to like read a chunk, and then we're going to stop. We're going to talk about it, get back in there, read the next chunk, stop, talk about it. So if you ha- didn't bring a Bible or haven't opened your Bible, I would encourage you to like grab a Bible from the pew in front of you or borrow one from the neighbor and like use that as a map as we go through this text. It will be up on the screen, but it's, we're going to be moving through it, and I, my, I don't want to lose kind of the main vein of what we're looking at. So open your Bible to Mark 6. Um, we're going to start in verse 12, which is actually a little bit before our actual teaching today, but that's just to build some context. So I see the flipping of pages. It's so beautiful. The sound of the... Th- <laughs> uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. God, you are with us, like you're here, and you are at work and alive, you're moving, and man, like what a privilege to get to dwell with you in that. Lord, this morning, would you, you've already shown up, you've already like made yourself known, God, this morning, would you give us hearts that, are, that can meet you, that can hear from you, that can digest and process your truth and your word, and would you give us hearts that are eager to respond to your invitation, to your truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's jump in this text. We're going to start in verse 12. Last week, Dale taught on this this passage, this is the tail end, Jesus sends out his disciples to go and start to do the work of the gospel, to go and tell people that the kingdom is coming. They go out and they do this. Verse 12, they, the disciples, went out. They preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. And some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claimed, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. We'll stop there. This is news to us. For the readers of Mark's gospel, the last time we saw John, he was getting taken to prison. That's not dead. That's just prison. And then Mark goes on and tells the story of Jesus, and then right in the middle of the story of Jesus just, like, drops this bomb. Oh, yeah, John doesn't have a head anymore. He's dead. Which is um, actually, like, pretty interesting storytelling. (laughs) Um, And we see it all the time, right, like in TVs and movies. Um, One of my favorites is Lost. Anybody a big Lost fan? This section! Just, yeah, you guys are feeling all the things. Um, I love Lost. It's 
um, the best, except for the last season that sucked. But the rest of it is so good. And um, 15 years ago, it was really good. And at the very beginning, whenever it came out, at the very beginning of COVID, one of my best friends and I watched the whole series over FaceTime. Yeah, it was amazing. It was like my, one of my highlights of COVID, just getting to like get back into that world. And the only reason I bring this up, besides getting any excuse to talk about Lost, is um, the way the show opens. The whole series starts with uh, the screen light comes on and it's a man's face. It's like really tight shot, his face. And his eyes are closed and his eyes open. And there's like, he's like kind of bloody and he gets up and he's like stumbling through the woods and the music's like really intense. And he's stumbling around and he makes his way to a beach and he like looks up and like he like sees, this is not a spoiler. It's been out for like 15 years, that's on you. But also it's like the first three minutes of the show. So like I'm not giving anything huge away. But he walks down the beach and there's like a plane ripped in pieces. And there's fire and people are injured and like it's intense and crazy. This is basically what Mark is doing. Mark is dropping you in the middle of chaos. Yes, the disciples are out. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And this guy, King Herod, is like hearing about it and responding to it with this paranoia, someone I, someone I murdered is back from the dead. And I assume like the other half of that sentence is to get me, <laughs> but I'm not Mark, so. But this is the way that Mark is like, what he's doing. He's dropping us in the middle of the story and he'll spend the next few verses unfolding what happened. And so if we can kind of step into this exercise of like the movie version of what Mark is writing, so just like go with me here, like I, I'm a visual person, everything has a picture to go with it. So if we're in the movie version of Mark 6, like, you know, it's black screen and then maybe you start to hear like party sounds, like people are laughing and there's like music and then the screen kind of like comes on and it's like kind of blurry, but you see like very opulent dressed biblical people and they're like dancing and there's laughter and like clinking of glasses and then the screen kind of fades out and fades back in. And then it's like that one of those like kind of like fuzzy you can kind of piece together. And if you have no idea what's happening, that's the point. So it like draws you in. You're like, oh, what is this fuzzy story that's coming together? And then you hear like the sharpening of a blade. And if that's morbid, I didn't write it. Like that's just what he did. And then the screen goes black again. And then we like come on and we see this old man's face. And his eyes are like pinned open. And, like, you can see the, like, fear in his knuckles, like, clenching onto his blanket and his head's against a pillow and he can't sleep. Like, this is what Mark drops us into. King Herod has done something that is haunting him. And so my natural first question is, like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, King Herod, who, I've heard of Herod. Is this the same Herod? So let me, let's do some, like, backstory on Herod. It's, it's helpful. And also, I think he's fascinating so, backstory on King Herod. First, very important thing, Herod is not a king. It's, like, not really totally clear if he just gave himself that title. That's, like, what most people believe. But he's not a king. His father, Herod the Great, was a king. That's the Herod that we heard about when, with Jesus, when Jesus was being born. Um, and he was a very brutal king. Like, he was known for being, like, really scary and intense, hence, like, the hunting down of babies. But when he died, um, the Roman Empire didn't really trust his sons as heirs to like any one of them to be the sole heir of his kingdom. So instead, they broke it up between the brothers. And Herod, our Herod's full name, or full official label name, is Herod of Antipas. So Herod of Antipas gets one section, and it's Galilee and Perea and some of the few like surrounding areas. So Herod's technical title is Tetrarch, and Tetrarch is basically like a mayor. So Herod is not a king, 
He's a mayor. And the, it's important also to just know the tension kind of that he rides in his leadership. So above him, he has the Roman Empire, who totally like passed him over for a really nice job. And he will spend his whole career really trying to prove to them and get more power from them. Like, I'm a good, I would be a good king. Give me more to lead. That's above him. Below him, he leads mostly a Jewish community. And if you've read the New Testament, you know that most of what was happening for the Jewish community in the New Testament was not led by, I mean, it was very much controlled by their political leaders, but it was very led by their religious leaders, by the Jewish leaders. And uh, Herod, Herod's Jewish-ish, like his Judaism is like a little bit unclear. His grandfather converted. He was like raised in like a Jewish life. He observed Jewish feasts. But he broke some really big Jewish rules, big ones that will come up in a minute. And because of that, he is not seen as like a leader for the people because he's not leading well. So Herod is like seen incompetent as the people above him, seen incompetent by the people below him. He's like the essential middle management. And he just like can't really catch a break no matter where he goes. This is Herod. This is kind of getting to know him and his personality. Yes? We keep reading. So the last thing we read is verse 16, that Herod believes that John, who he beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now we unfold the story. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he was bound and put in prison. And he did this because Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife, he did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, whom he, Herod, this is confusing, I know, we'll talk about it. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. So a lot going on there, but real quick, Herod got his little backstory. Let's give John some backstory. Um, John the Baptist is a fairly well-known biblical figure. Um, even if you've never read the Bible, you probably have some sort of conception of like what he was like or his reputation of being like kind of intense um he's an extremely well-known like in classical art he's one of the most captured figures like I have some very famous pieces of art featuring John the Baptist um I what these well we'll get to that in a minute um if you were with us during Advent like a month ago uh, we talked about the birth of John. I talked about the birth of John. I've really gotten the bookends of John's life this year and when we talked about him we talked about how even before he was born uh, there was a prophecy about an angel said, Zechariah, this priest, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to prepare the way of the coming Messiah. And then Zechariah's wife Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And she, her, friend, her relative Mary, who's also pregnant with Jesus. And from the womb, John lives into his calling and like jumps when Mary and Jesus walk into the room, in the wombs, like this whole big crazy womb party. And you get it. And, um, and then John is born. He's raised in the temple. His father's a priest, so he gets his like, education, Jewish education. He goes out into the wilderness. And then other gospels will tell us what happens, fill in some of those gaps. He comes out of the wilderness declaring, prepare, like, repent, prepare the way, the kingdom of God is near. And uh, it's these wilderness years that I think give this reputation to John. And like some of these paintings like, make him look very gaunt and kind of like sickly. Some of them make him look like Iron Man, like that one with the red I'm like, I don't know what's going on in the wilderness. But what they all have is John has great hair. <laughs> I always, like, associated that when, when people, like, said he was, like, a crazy person, his hair was, like, really. But all of these paintings, he's got these, like, defined curls and, like, no frizz. I'm like, I don't know what's going on in the wilderness, but I want it. Um, 
but I don't. He also like had to eat bugs and stuff, and I'm not into that. But um, John, John is like extremely passionate about his calling. He's completely 100% committed to it. And as he's declaring to people, repent, the kingdom of God is coming, it's this, it's this like preparation. You are sinful, and for you to receive the coming kingdom, you need to be pure, you need to be clean. So repent from your sins, be baptized, John the Baptist, be baptized as a, this embodied picture of going into the water sinful, coming out pure, restored, so that you can be ready for the kingdom that is coming. And John is passionate and thorough, so he doesn't just stop with the people in the wilderness, doesn't just stop with the people in Galilee, he goes to the mayor and says, Herod, your marriage to your wife, your brother's wife, is unlawful. This is bad. You should repent because the kingdom of God is coming and you, you need to be ready to receive it. And I think it's interesting if you look back at that text, we don't actually hear like a response from Herod about that. We hear it from Herod's wife, from Herodias, that she resented that, that she resented John calling her out on her marriage and she wanted to kill him, but she can't. So we keep reading. Verse 20, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. And I was stuck on this verse for weeks. This fascinated me. Like, I mean, we, again, this is a text that most of us have probably read before that we zoom through. Oh, yeah, this is where John dies, moving on. I've never, it's never occurred to me that, like, Herod was a dynamic and complicated person who maybe had a chance. And when I read this, was just like, wait a second. Herod liked John. Herod protected John. Herod could have easily killed him right away, but he didn't. When his wife wanted him dead, Herod was like, okay, okay. Let's just put him in jail. Put him in jail. It'll be fine. And this is the part where in my movie version, like, it starts to kind of play out. Like, I, this, I've seen this scene in a million movies where, like, Okay, Herod's like in his beautiful like throne room, but he's not a king. So he's in his office and he like tells his guards at the mayoral office with like a seal on the carpet. And he tells his guards like, hey, go get that John guy. And they start talking and maybe it starts as John is like standing there in chains. But after a few hours, you know, now he's like sitting on the couch and Herod's asking questions. And he's like really compelled and fascinated by what John is saying and talking about this kingdom and like that's a touchy subject for a Herod. So like hearing someone talk about a, a better kingdom is like kind of interesting and compelling. And, and it, did you see this says that Herod believed him to be a holy and righteous man. So he knows, he knows that John is, is right. And so like my, what I see in Herod is like, I mean, he's not wrong. Like everything he's saying is true. And, and I, he's like compelled by that. And they develop this, like, unlikely friendship where there's, like, truth being spoken and, like, questioned. And, like, there's, I just, it fascinates me. I am so, like, compelled by these verses. And there, my, this little spring of hope pops up in me for Herod. Like, maybe this is going to end better than I think. Except for that massive spoiler, like, five verses ago where I already know John's head's gone. So I know it's not. But I can hope that, like, maybe this will be like Daniel and Darius. We're, like, uh, back in the book of Daniel. King Darius throws Daniel in the lion's den. God saves Daniel. And when Darius sees that Daniel has survived, Darius is like, okay, everyone in my kingdom, this is the real God. We all worship him now. Like, this is, he's, this is the God we're going to follow. Maybe this will be like that. Like, 
John will, John's like, like announcement of the kingdom is so compelling and, and Herod is so like convicted by it that he just turns his whole, king, his whole town, not kingdom, doesn't have one, his whole town towards God. That like springs up in me. And then I keep reading and that gets dashed. So we'll go to verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, if you read any commentary or other sermon or article about this passage, I can pretty much guarantee you that they will spend the bulk of my time telling you how depraved and debaucherous and disgusting this night was. Because that was pretty much all I found. <laughs> um, and I'm going to need to do that. It was a gross night. If your birthday party is any definition of what kind of person you are, Herod's not a good guy. All kinds of problems in this party. Really horrible stuff. Just gross. But there is one thing that I think is really funny. And that's this last line when, King, when Herod says to Herodias' daughter, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Doesn't have a kingdom. Not a king. <laughs> totally empty promise. Has nothing to give her. And I just, for me, this doubles down on how committed Herod is to the delusion of his own kingdom and his own control and his own world and how, like, completely enabling everyone around him is. How, how is it that no one at that party was like, hey, is this weird that your daughter is doing this? How come no one was like, he doesn't have a kingdom, don't, like, don't believe him? Like, how is there no one that stepped up and said, like, this is off? We keep reading. Verse 24. She... The daughter went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. And at once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give to me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately set an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl she gave it to her mother, and on hearing this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. And that's where our narrative ends. Uh, in our movie version, this zooms us back to that opening moment with Herod, unable to sleep, clutching his fists, fearful of what's coming for him. And I, frankly, like, the more time I spent in this text, the more I just felt total whiplash getting to the end of this story. Like, five seconds ago, I thought Herod was going to have a total change of heart. What happened? How do we go from, I like him, I protect him, I believe he is right and holy, to dead? So as we move out of the narrative and kind of reflect on, on Herod, really, I want to invite you to kind of like, consider where we might fall in the different pockets of this story. Just like kind of have that as like the tent of your sunglasses as we move out of our narrative. What happened? How do we go from in, like intrigue and com being compelled and on board to whatever that was? Um, and there's one really obvious one. 
Herod had horrible people around him. I mean, like, if you notice, every, like, major plot point involves someone else, like, pushing or enabling really poor choices. And, I mean, I think that's really obvious. Like, the people around you matter. I mean, you know, if you, having a wife who doesn't want to kill the person makes a big difference in this story. <laughs> you know? Having people at the party who say, hey, that was, this is weird. This is bad. We shouldn't do this. That would have changed a lot about that night. The people around you really matter. But I already gave that sermon. It's called Friendship in the Kingdom of God. And it will be somewhere. <laughs> Making me thumbs up. It'll be somewhere at the end of this. So go listen to that. I don't have time to do two sermons today. So the people around you matter. That sermon will tell you why. Next reason. Um, I think there's another really obvious what happened with Herod. And it's very easy to see if you like contrast a little bit. So this story might sound familiar because almost the exact same thing happened in the Old Testament to King David, who was a real king, by the way. King David sees this woman, Bathsheba. He wants to have her, which is problematic in its own right. Has her husband killed, takes her as his wife. And Nathan, the prophet, comes to David to call him out on his sin. And Nathan tells this very long story. He explains to David, there was, there was once a king, or no, a very wealthy man, but, you know, it's not supposed to be on the nose. Like, it's, he's playing it coy. There's a very wealthy man. And he has thousands, and also, this is the VeggieTales version. So he has thousands of rubber duckies. And I, we're talking about beheadings. I'm just trying to, like, balance in the heaviness here. Um, king, thou, or no, wealthy man, thousands of rubber duckies. And next door, there was a really poor man. And he only had one rubber ducky. And it was precious to him. It was like a child. And the really wealthy man was having some guests and wanted to give them the gift and luxury of a rubber ducky but didn't want to part with any of his own, so he sent someone to go and steal the poor man's precious rubber ducky. And when David heard this story, the text says that David burned with anger and said, surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. And Nathan responds, I think this is like some of the most beautifully dramatic response ever written. Um, Nathan says, you are the man. (laughs) And then spends like two paragraphs telling David how God is going to pour out judgment on him for what he's done. And then David responds, six words, he's once like one line, this is all David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says, the Lord has forgiven your sin, you shall not die. <laughs> like word for word. And then spends like two paragraphs telling uh, David about the mercy God is going to have on him. There is going to be consequence. He did some gnarly stuff, and there will be consequences for that. But ultimately, God will show mercy to David because of his repentant heart. And I read that, and I want to go like, Herod, you're, like, just say you're sorry. Just apologize. All you have to do, one lot, like six words, and so much of this can change. Like your whole, everything can be different. If you could just say you're sorry, if you can just repent. Repentance becomes like this, like central like, what-if moment in this story. So let's just for a second zoom in on repentance. Let's define it. And this is not like an official technical uh, definition. This is just like the one I came up with. However, it does have three parts, and they all start with the same letter. So that makes it pretty sermon official (laughs) and very well written. (laughs) Um, First part of repentance, responsibility. I did that, right? Ownership. Second part of repentance, Remorse. 
I feel bad about that. And the third part of repentance, redirection. I did that. I feel bad about it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to change my direction to do not that. Right? These things become repentance when they work together. And you really need all three for it to be sincere. There's, if you, I mean, just play the game of like, what if I have these two but not this one? It doesn't work. Trust me. We see none of that in Herod. Herod has zero repentance. He has no responsibility. He has no remorse. And he certainly is not interested in any redirection. So we see a total, like, lack of repentance in Herod. And again, I, like, I encourage you to kind of put on your own self-glasses with this, but, like, it makes me wonder, like, what, like, what stopped him? It said that, like, he knew John was right. Like, there's something in him that got it, but was, like, wasn't able to move past it. And I think the reality is, like, repentance is really hard. Um, why do we repent? Like, what causes you to repent? You do something wrong. You, like, don't meet a standard or an expectation, right? So, like, maybe it's because my, the expectation with me and my best friend group chat is that when someone says something, we respond. But if someone says something and no one responds, just totally ghoster, then it could be like, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. I totally did not, like, honor or acknowledge what you shared. I take responsibility, uh, and I, next time I will, right? Like, I take responsibility, I acknowledge that I, I know it makes her sad, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, or, you know, sometimes you repent, like, if you're like my little brother when he was six and he stole the candy bar from the grocery store while we were waiting in line. And then he had to go back and look the manager in the eye and say, I'm so sorry for stealing this candy bar. And then he never did it again. <laughs> like, repentance works to, like, change our direction, right? Those things are hard. It's hard to acknowledge to someone else that what you did caused pain. It's hard to acknowledge to someone that, you know, you, you didn't, you're not perfect, that you're broken. Well, it shouldn't be because we all are and we all know that. But there's something about just the reality of acknowledging to someone else that there's holes in us or there's faults in us that's really vulnerable and uncomfortable. And I, I want to, like, just confess something um, as I was preparing this, and it was clear that we were moving in the direction of, like, when I say we, I, it was clear I was moving in the direction of talking about repentance, and I had this, like, subconscious, like, aversion to it. And every time I would, like, start to kind of, high, like, come up in my notes, I would, like, delete it and just be like, no, 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 like, what else can I say about beheadings? Like, what, what else can I talk about? And I, the more that happened, the more I became aware, like, it was less subconscious and more, like, conscious. And I was like, Why? What's happening? And then it just became like, ugh, I don't want to talk about repentance. Like, that's not fun. <laughs> and, like, people are going to be like, oh, like, Melissa is not, like, the fun, cool person. She's, like, the bad news person. Like, no, like, I don't want to talk about repentance. It's, like, going to be too much. Like, no, no, no. And um, the more that I sat with that, the more that I became extremely convicted. And what God really spoke to me is if, if you believe that, if you believe that repentance is bad news, then you have no idea what it is. And you frankly don't think I'm very good. And that like really got me. And um, I repented, and now the sermon's about repentance. So um, I, I just, we, I think we need to like really acknowledge that. Repentance is not bad news. 
Repentance is the best news. It is, it is God's kindness that calls us to repentance. So let me like lean in. Oh, and here's why. Here's why. When we talk about repentance with people, it's those three parts, right? It's I'm taking responsibility. I feel bad about it. I'm not going to do that anymore. When you are talking about repentance with God, there is always a fourth part every time, and it's restoration. Every time we come in with repentance, Jesus meets us with restoration, full restoration. Not like, oh, you said you're sorry, but I need to kind of see it in action before I believe it. Or not like, oh, you said you're sorry, but I don't know if you're like, I'm going to still punish you a little bit passively for what you did. 100% full restoration. In the book of Psalms, it says that he separates our transgressions from as far as the east is from the west. You are given a clean, 100% clean, restored to the heart of God. That makes repentance incredibly good news. Repentance is not, it, it's just, it's the best possible thing. Because of what Jesus did, it, it is everything for us. So I, I know when I start talking about repentance, maybe your sense, and this was the sense I was feeling, is like, it just feels like a burden, like, I'm just asking everyone to, like, have to acknowledge where they've messed up. Nobody wants to do that. Like, well, first of all, who's still keeping their New Year's resolution? Yeah, we all mess up. Like, duh. <laughs> just part of being a person. You don't meet your own standard. Of course we don't meet God's standard. Like, that's not a surprise to anybody. No one, like, no one's buying anything else. We all know we're broken. It doesn't matter what your Instagram says. We know. <laughs> Sorry, that was a rant. <laughs> Repentance is not, it's not a burden. It is an invitation. Repentance is not like you having to like come and like take all these things and fix them. It is Jesus saying, I'll do it. Give it to me. Give that to me. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Many years ago, I was talking to this guy and um, we were talking about Jesus and he was sharing how he had been really compelled by Jesus, very interested in Jesus and like had kind of been hearing about him for a while and and he had all these kind of reasons for why he just wasn't really ever ready to like fully engage with saying yes to Jesus. And after a while, I just stopped him and was like, just like right now, what is stopping you? Like what's stopping you from saying yes to Jesus? And he thought for a minute and he said, you know, if you were going to invite a king over, you'd want to clean up first. And I just, I need to clean up a little bit before I invite him in. I thought that was very well said. Um, but I was able to say to him, and I can say to you today, Jesus is not that kind of king. He is a master cleaner. That is like why he became king. That's what makes him the king he is. He's not asking you to clean your house enough for him. You can't. He's saying like, hey, I want to come in. I'll help you clean. I have all the tools. I have all the organizational skills. Like I have that vacuum cleaner that gets your couch. Like I've got the stuff. Let me in. It's not a burden. It's an invitation for like just the fullness of his love and care and partnership. The other thing is that repentance, I know it, it can feel like condemnation. The minute we start to talk about repenting, what naturally comes up is like all the things I have to repent for and very quickly we can become overwhelmed by them and feel crushed by them. Jesus offers you the greatest freedom you can possibly imagine. And let me tell you something, the enemy does not want you to have it. Repentance is not condemnation, it is liberation. And the enemy will try to tell you that if you even begin to go towards, I should repent for this thing, he'll keep you at, but look at all these horrible things you are and you did. 
Romans 8 says that there is no condemnation for those in Messiah. You are not condemned. That is not from God. Okay, we're going to talk about this real quick. We got to clap. <laughs> I, when We get like a few. Okay, good. <laughs> Sorry, this happens so much. We get like a few pitter-patters and they're like, oh, we're not clapping. Sorry. No, no, no. We can clap. That's okay. If you hear a pitter-patter, get in there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I've been wanting to say that for a long time. <laughs> um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah. That means that when we start to talk about repentance, if you feel condemned, that is not from God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And you can say, like, that's not what's happening here. The, uh, the other half of that verse, Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ, the law of the Spirit gives life and has set you free. Condemnation is like, oh, God, that's good, that's good. Con <laughs> Condemnation says you are guilty, done. Liberation says you were guilty. I covered your debt. You are free. That is what repentance brings us to. Now, here's like the other half of that. There is no condemnation for those who are Messiah. But because of his spirit, the personal empowered presence that we get to experience within us, we do experience conviction. And conviction is God's mercy that makes us aware of where he wants to set us free in things. It doesn't, condemnation will say, you're horrible, you're the worst, all these things you did, you're like, blah, like just make you feel like garbage. Conviction will say, I love you so much, I don't want this thing between us anymore. Will you give it to me so that we can like be, so we can be restored? Condemnation will tell, will lie to you about you. Conviction will invite you to the feet of Jesus. Totally different things. <laughs> and so we're going to move now towards our, uh, into our response time, and I'll invite Matt to come back up. And as we do that, I, I want to kind of pose a few questions or challenges, or I just kind of want to, like, I want to, frankly, I want to figure out what happened with Herod, and I want to make sure that it's not happening with me. And I want to make sure it's not happening with you. So if you're here this morning and you have a follower of Jesus and there are things that are coming up for you that, um, that are being highlighted in this, Jesus' invitation to you is to repent. I think it's really beautiful that John's invitation to repentance was a preparation. He said, the kingdom of God is coming. Repent so you can receive it. For us, though, the invitation to repentance is not a preparation. The kingdom's already here. Jesus came. He's alive. So the invitation to repentance is, is a response. You can't clean your house enough, and no one is asking you to. Jesus' invitation to you is just Come, with, come to me exactly as you are, exactly with what you've got, and I will do the work. I already did it. Let me have that thing. So this morning, if, if that's you, when we fully are in our response time, I want to invite you to, like, take the action Herod did not take. Show remorse. Change direction. Receive restoration. Take responsibility, all four of them. Um, these carpets we have down here, like, they're, they're, like, sacred space. And um, I, if you 
haven't ever like gotten on your knees before, I want to challenge you to consider like what God has like wants to give you when you fully are like humbled and repentant on your knees, like thanking God, begging him for his mercy. And when you knowing that he has promised he will meet you there with the fullness of his restoration. We also are going to have communion. As you take communion to like let this be a reminder that it is through what Jesus did that we experience the fullness of that restoration. Apart from what he did, our, we do stand condemned. We are guilty. But because of what he did, we are completely free. And his blood, his body are like the testimony of that, the reminder of that. And then on the wings, we'll have the prayer team. And as always, they're there to pray with you through whatever's coming up, whatever's on your heart. But specifically, I want to invite, if you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, this invitation to liberation, this is for you. If you're feeling the burden of failure, like brokenness, Jesus' invitation to you is come to me, you who are weary, I will give you rest. He tells you, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Whatever's weighing you down, give it to me, I will take it. What I give you in return is peace, salvation, mercy, total restoration to the heart of God. And I know that maybe you don't know how to do that, you don't know what to say, you don't know. It can be as simple as just in in your own head saying like, God, I need help. If you want to ask questions, that the prayer team would love to pray with you, would love to answer your questions. If you came with someone, to turn to them and say like, help. <laughs> but it strikes me, the more time I spent in this passage, how close Herod was to the mercy of God. Like he, he could have literally put his hands on it and didn't. And I don't want to be that person when God has fully and generously offered his kindness and his mercy to me. And he's offered it to you. And all you have to do is say yes. So I'm going to pray and, and I want to invite you to take a step towards restoration through repentance. Whether it's in your seat, on the carpets, at communion with the prayer team, it doesn't matter. Jesus knows your heart. He's with you where you are. Let's receive the generous gift he's given us. God, we don't deserve how good you are. We don't deserve your generosity. We don't deserve your kindness. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve restoration, God. We, we're a mess. We are broken. We fail. But God, you, your love is so great, so much bigger, so much better than we can possibly imagine that you would come and find us. You'd come and like come after us so that you could be with us. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that in these moments you would give them the sensitivity to your, to your leading. Give them, God, a, a courage to respond to your invitation to freedom. God, I pray that, that in this sacred space, in these sacred moments that we would experience full, your restoration and the freedom that you bring. <laughs>